And here we are in season three of Kremlin File. And look who we have today with us, David Kramer. Hello. (laughs) It's great to see you guys again. Thanks for having me back. Oh, we love to have you you back. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. Okay, we're starting off. We're kicking everything off with with Ukraine. Okay, and we're going to go into a little bit of an overview. First of all, bring everybody up to speed on what is happening now. And especially, especially this counteroffensive, which is incredible. Absolutely. What the Ukrainian armed forces has done is incredible incredible. Dave, would you like to bring us up to date on what's happening? Sure. Well, look, I would say what the Ukrainians have accomplished since February 24th has been incredible. Um, They have shown amazing determination to defend their land, their country, their freedom, and they're doing it at tremendous cost. But they have morale on their side. They have the right cause on their side. And uh, Ukrainians are absolutely convinced that they will prevail on this. There have been surveys that show Over 90% of Ukrainians think they will, in fact, prevail. Um, Almost 90% oppose any negotiations with the Russians um, in exchange for any territorial concessions. That They think they're going to regain all of their territory. And I frankly think they have the possibility of doing so, as long as we continue to provide support to them. As you said, Mo, they've been really on the offense, uh, regaining territory in the northern part um, and it has been, I think, a, an incredibly impressive performance by them. It's been an incredibly abysmal performance by the Russian military. And so th- this combination, I think, is very important to keep in mind. The Ukrainians have, have done a heroic job and they perform brilliantly. But the Russians have really screwed this up. And, and they have from day one because they underestimated the Ukrainians' ability and determination to defend themselves. They thought the Ukrainians would embrace them as as liberators of their country from this absurd charge that Ukraine was led by a neo-Nazi regime. They thought Zelensky and his government would collapse within three days and be driven out. And and they obviously uh, underestimated the the response of the international community by by mostly Europe and the United States and some other allies. And, And lastly, the Russians, the Kremlin, Putin, grossly overestimated their own military capabilities. Mm. We, we see the effects of what corruption can do in innovating a military where they were not prepared. And with all those underestimations and then the overestimation, the Russians have been getting really clobbered literally on the battlefield. The, the U.S. Defense Department has estimated, and this is now a couple of weeks ago, that between 70 and 80,000 Russian forces have either been killed or wounded That's an astounding number, vastly more than Russian or Soviet losses, I should say, in Afghanistan. And I think there are serious questions about Putin's and Russia's capability of sustaining this campaign. Um, Yesterday, of course, on on Wednesday, Putin announced this partial mobilization, which he attributed, by the way, to the defense ministry. He didn't say he was ordering it, Mm -hmm. but that the defense ministry had. That could produce, some estimates are, around 300,000 more troops. I, I doubt he'll get even half of that. We, we've seen flights out of Moscow being sold out. A lot of Russians are fleeing as a result. And so, uh, and, and, and the Russians are turning to the Iranians and North Koreans for drones and ammunition and weapons. So that's not a good sign. Yeah, I know. I'm really sorry I'm laughing because, you know, I don't want to offend anybody that's watching or anything like that. 
But I think that he's really scrambling, okay, to get whatever support he can in the international community. And of course, you know, I mean, North Korea came out, I think, yesterday saying, no, we're not giving them any arms. Um, Iran now, no, we know that there are protests going on inside. So I don't know how much of a partner that's, you know, they are uh, with those. Um, one then thing Putin just got stiff, basically, sorry to interrupt, but Putin got yeah, yeah. stiff last week in Samarkand when when he yeah. met with uh, the leaders of, of India and China, the Central Asian leaders didn't give him much love. Um, and, and so everywhere he looks, people are trying to distance themselves. Now, to be clear, um, India, for example, has been a disappointment because it has not joined the sanctions. It has remained mm-hmm. neutral mm-hmm. at best um, on this issue. Um, but everyone kept Putin waiting. You know, Putin is famous yeah. for being very late to meetings and keeping other leaders waiting. There was this montage of four photos yeah. of Putin with different uh, flags of leaders that were supposed to meet with him. He was there waiting for them. So it's yeah. quite a turnabout. <laughs> yeah. And, and they were hugging goalies. each other. They were hugging each other and he's standing in the corner, like all confused because no one's yeah. paying attention to him. Yeah, and there was another picture too, I think, with uh, Erdogan, where he was sitting at the chair, right, sitting on a chair, and Putin was sort of on the couch, squeezed between two other you no know, leaders, yeah, sure. yeah. and he looked like he's sort of like the old guy that's there, and you know they're going to get him a glass of tea, like a cup of tea pretty soon. Um, that's what he, he looks, looks like yeah, a small no. man. He looks like a yeah, small man. He looks very small right now. Right. You're absolutely right. You're and absolutely he really right. is a small man to begin in with. Every <laughs> exactly. In every yeah. way. In every way. Um, yeah, no, and they announced um, you know, the referendums with the sham, you know, basically annexing without even attempting to create any kind of uh image of uh legal, uh like you know, of it being legal. And um, literally, they were like, oh, and um, Ossetia and Abkhazia and North Korea and Iran, not Iran, I'm sorry. Ossetia, Abkhazia, North Korea and Syria all support, you know, that this is Russian territory. I'm like, two occupied, two (laughs) occupied, Russian occupied territories, Syria (laughs) and North Korea. I'm like, okay, that's what we're country. down to. Not Iran, not yeah. China, not yeah. you know, Venezuela. Yeah. Those two. So, I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. And also they, the vote in the UN. The vote in the yeah. UN as well, you know, where you mm-hmm. can see a clear, clear, let's say, isolation. That's what it looks like to me anyway. Yeah. David, there's a lot to unpack here. So... Uh, of what you said, because you pretty much answered all the questions in the first question. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Bye. Yes. <laughs> but we're going to pick apart your whole answer. You didn't touch on one thing I'm shocked, which is Putin's uh, demise um, has just sped up. But we'll get. Uh, yeah, to let's that. get to, to the end. Yeah. yeah. And so. We know Ukrainians. I mean, Ukrainians are persistent. They've been fighting since 2014. You know, we know that they will not give up land, especially now that they're making, you know, so many gains. They're not going to sit at any negotiating table. The only negotiations are for Russians to get off their land, including Crimea, including Donbass and whatnot. But on the Russian military. I am personally shocked that everybody was so shocked of how um 
you know, poorly they were performing because of the corruption. I mean, you know yourself uh, for like a contract that's written to military by the time the contract even gets to what it's supposed to, it goes into several pockets, starting from every person that it goes through. Why did the West um, under uh, overestimate uh, Russia's military so much without factoring the corruption, without factoring, mm. you know, the disorganization and without factoring that they have officials in place because they're Putin's cronies, not because they actually have any kind of expertise or knowledge? It's a great question, Olga. And, and look, I, I think the intelligence community in the United States deserves credit for predicting that Putin was going to invade. They had that right. And, and they had very good information on that. They were clearly getting information from inside Moscow on, on what was happening. I thought their uh, decision to disclose quite a bit of this information was actually a very smart thing to do. They had it absolutely wrong, however, um, on how the invasion would play out. The U.S. intelligence community, like the Kremlin, thought that this would be over in a matter of days. That had a very unfortunate effect on U.S. policymaking because I believe in the White House, the decision was made to withhold the real necessary military assistance that we could have provided at the very beginning, before the invasion, um, because we felt, well, what's the point if this war is going to be over? Um, there's no point giving the Ukrainians this ammunition. And then there was the further concern that providing that assistance early on would provoke Putin. I, I frankly have never understood that argument, because if we were being told by the intelligence community that we were certain Putin was going to invade, then there was no provocation. He was going to invade whether we anyway. provided assistance or not. So it would have been better had we provided uh, strong military assistance. That said, I do think that the intelligence community and the Biden administration have done a much better job um, really since February 24th. Been a little slow on providing the military assistance, but what we're providing them now is clearly having an impact on the ground. We're also sharing intelligence information with them that I think has been critical to the Ukrainians' ability to fight back and regain some of their territory. So overall, I would give the Biden administration a pretty good grade, but I do think the administration needs to come out and clearly say our goal is to see Ukraine prevail, to win, to be victorious. What does that mean? Driving Russian forces off of Ukrainian territory, including the Donbass, including Kherson, including Crimea. And that means defeating Russia in Ukraine. No one's talking about it except for Putin going across the border and invading Russia. These absurd referenda that you referred to are designed to try to say if you attack these areas after they vote in a phony mm -hmm. referendum to mm -hmm. join Russia, it'll be an attack on Russia. Well, I mean, they already illegally annexed Crimea and the Ukrainians have been hitting Crimea and the Russians haven't really been pushing back. So a lot of this is bluster. Um, and, and I think the the issue about overestimating the Russian military, yeah, you're absolutely right. We, we didn't factor in enough the effect on corruption. Um, we, we bought into a little too much. By we, I mean the expert community and the intelligence community uh, bought in a little too much the modernization of the Russian military. And I think we we uh, got got uh, off on the wrong track as a result. Mm. Well, I think, too, is that uh, just by reading a lot of reports, even beforehand, um, I just saw a lot of numbers 
You know, they go by, okay, they, they have so much of this, so much of that, so much of the other. They don't factor in other things as, for example, how the military um, is headed, who who are the commanders, can they fall, are they good commanders? You know, they're different aspects the, the that, are never, that were never taken into consideration. <laughs> they just look at a piece of paper and they say, okay, they've got so much of this, so much of that, so much of the other. They're on these supply lines. They're clear, blah, blah, blah. But they're not looking at the other factors, the morale, different things that really do make a difference. The no. vodka, the vodka, the, the vodka. vodka. Yeah. The vodka, the vodka. They didn't check the vodka sales. Exactly. <laughs> well, look, I, but the morale point, I think, is so important on this. The Ukrainians know why they're fighting. They're fighting because they have been invaded in a wholly unprovoked, unjustified action by Putin. The, most of the Russian forces have no idea why they're there. They, they were forced to read Putin's article, if you remember, from July mm-hmm. of last year, of what a 6,000 word screed, in which he basically <laughs> said, Ukraine is not a real state. It's not a separate nation. We're all one people. So it, why Russian forces might be wondering, are we invading one people? Why are we invading our, our own friends and, and fellow Slavs? So I, I, I think it, it, it was the issue of morale was very much on Ukraine's side. Um, I do think the response of the international community um, in the very early days was, was important. I think Chancellor Schultz, who uh, there's been a lot of, I think, justified disappointment with Germany's response in the past few months, but his initial response was very important. He put a stop to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, said Germany was going to increase its defense budget. It indicated that Putin was not going to succeed in trying to split off countries within the EU, within NATO, or between the United States and NATO. So I think that unified response was very important. But we can't say enough in saluting the Ukrainians and saluting President Zelensky's leadership um, of course, uh, that famous line when the U.S. offered to, to evacuate him and he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. I, I mean, it's been brilliant leadership. And, and so uh, but but we just can't say enough uh, in, in saluting what the Ukrainians have been doing. Uh, you, lo- you look at um, Bucha, Mariupol and, and yeah. Izium now um, yeah. with with clear evidence of war crimes, crimes against humanity. And, and I think it is fair to say genocide. Um, where the Russians have been essentially trying to obliterate the Ukrainians as a as an independent identity, and so um, it, it's it's been just tremendously inspiring on the one hand, heartbreaking on the other. Um, but I, I do think that Putin has really uh, made a fundamental mistake with this invasion. He's he's met his match, and I don't think these uh, this mobilization is going to change things. Nor do I think his threats about using nuclear weapons, um, which were were pretty clearly implied in what he said on Wednesday. Yeah. After Biden's speech, we I mean, we all listened to what he said at the U.N. Do you think, David, that uh, the U.S. will start sending even heavier weapons now? Is this what is needed to, let's say, to make a decisive to help Ukraine decisively at this stage? It is what is needed. I hope we will do that. Um, there has always been a bit of a time lag in what we've been providing, what the Ukrainians need. And what I'd like to see is for that time lag to be basically reduced to zero. Um, the Ukrainians have been crystal clear in indicating what they have needed. We eventually do provide a lot of the assistance that they ask for, um, but that delay is costly. 
Um, the, the basically yeah. what Foreign Minister Kaliba has, has argued is the faster we get military assistance, the faster this war will end and the faster the killing will stop. Yeah. Nobody wants this war to end more than the Ukrainians do. And yet they are convinced that the only way to end this war is to defeat Russia militarily. The, the, remember that, that um, uh, President Zelensky offered to uh, drop aspirations for joining NATO in the early days of the war and that Ukraine would become a neutral state. So for those like John Mearsheimer and others who argue that NATO enlargement is responsible for all this, that was disproven right there. Forget the fact that when Russia first invaded in 2014, uh, Yanukovych, who was the pro-Russian president at the time, had dropped pursuit of NATO membership in 2010. Uh, that was about the EU back in 2013, 2014. So uh, we, we clearly need to provide Ukraine with uh, everything they need so that they can defeat Russia on the battlefield, drive Russian forces off Ukrainian territory. Um, but then I would also argue um, we need to be working now. Actually, we should have been doing it quite a while ago and not just freezing Russian assets, the over $300 billion the Russians stupidly left in. Uh, European and American and Japanese bank accounts, um, but we need to seize those funds, not just freeze them, but seize them. That money, over $300 billion, $30 billion of which is in the United States, should never be returned to Russia after the terrible yeah. devastation they've inflicted on Ukraine. That money should be transferred to Ukraine to help with the reconstruction and humanitarian support. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, David, you said that the mobilization right will make no difference whatsoever olga i i assume you 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 know you agree with uh agree i actually <laughs> like, what the i hell? actually i actually have been hoping for months now that putin will do this and okay I you're mean, gonna have to explain that though i've Why? been hoping explain like, it and then david I, you can kick in with whatever and olga no doesn't mention tell us olga love i've been hoping so you know, mobilizing for those who don't know the people fighting in uh, on the Russian side in Ukraine, they're being pulled out of the poorest regions where they probably have never seen anything outside of their territory. They have no money. They have nothing. And I mean, uh, you know, uh, it was getting to a point that was so ridiculous that Prigozhin is pulling out, which he heads Wagner mercenaries for those who don't know. Um, he was pulling out prisoners, yes, prisoners, and he was giving them, I mean, uh, you know, what a sales pitch. You have 20% chance of survival and, and, and then uh, you'll get 200,000 rubles. And then in the latest, which you get a lot this part is disturbing. They were pulling people out of mental institutions. Now that's a human rights crime because prisoners at least can make a mental decision of what they can do. Uh, mental patients cannot, if they're in a, you know, in a mental institution facility, they can make, you know, the correct decision of their future and, you know, what path. So Putin used every option because he knew that the Russians as a whole could care less of what the Russian military is doing, because for them, it's not affecting them. They're still going clubbing and continuing on with their life, granted. Things are getting more expensive on the shelves and, you know, and um, the, the products are limited because of all the sanctions that are rolling in. And now they're finally like you see the effect of the sanctions. But as long as it doesn't interfere their household, they're fine. 
And that's why I was hoping, because the minute Putin riles up Russians, where they have to actually sacrifice their own lives, Mm. that is what is going to speed up his demise. Because, you know, it's one thing people see, like, you know, the support from Russia. What people don't understand since Soviet days, and I mean, you know, this happened to family members of mine, that you show up to work, you are given no choice. You have to, like, they tell you, you're getting on this bus today, they wheel you off, hand you a placard or a plaque, and you're holding the sign in support of the government. You know, so to talk with your mouth or to have to follow orders is fine. When you actually have to send your husband, son, brothers, family members off to military, knowing the information that is coming out, because many people think there is like an information blockade inside of Russia. No, Russians are getting everything they need to get. It's just that at this point, they're not concerned what the Russian military is doing because it's not interfering with their lives. When they now it begins to interfere with their lives, you're going to see a huge difference. There's going to be so much pressure on the regime. And there's going to be so much pushback. And we're already seeing the pushback. I mean, granted, the protests, you know, that started unfolding were mild, but they're only going to grow because this is just day one. And people are in too much shock of trying to figure out, like, the number one thing, you know, search topic was which flight can I take out of here? What country can I leave without a visa? You know what yesterday's was? (laughs) Yesterday's. How do I break my arm? Yeah. So when they get over that and they're actually Mm -hmm. seeing their family members being shoved on buses, having the terror of state police coming door to door and collecting family members and yanking them out of the house or picking them up off the street as yesterday was happening in Leningrad region, Mm -hmm. it's Mm going to sink in. So that's my say on that. So I welcome it and we needed it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I, I I agree with you. Okay. I would just add a couple of things. One is, I actually was impressed with the protest yesterday. You think about it, the speech was given in the morning and I don't know, about 1300 people risked arrest and they were arrested. And I think it was around 38 or 40 cities across the country. It it wasn't massive, but it's a fascist state these days in Russia. And so Mm -hmm. for people to turn out and protest, take some real courage. And it's what we need to see. Absolutely. The other element I would add is, Again, agree completely that a lot of the forces that have been sent to Ukraine came from come from the poorer regions of Russia, Buryatia and elsewhere, Dagestan. Um, this this move to uh, mobilize partial mobilization is likely going to affect a lot of people in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And Putin is not as popular in those two cities as he is in other parts of the country. And so it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is as this mobilization kicks in, um, as you said, these these uh, website searches indicate mm-hmm. a lot of people don't support this. And mm-hmm. I think the more uh, of fathers and sons and brothers that don't return from the fighting, the more unhappy the Russian population. I mean, that alone, whether there's an information blockade or not, the fact that their family members are not coming home or if they are coming home, they'll come home in a body bag that alone will indicate to them what's really happening on the ground there. Remember, the the Russian parliament, I think it was last year, passed legislation allowing for mobile crematoria, Mm -hmm. uh, which people assume was designed in part to hide human rights abuses. But I think it's also designed to try to cover up Russian losses. 
on the battlefield. And that's a, that's an indication that this is a sensitive issue for Putin. Uh, remember what happened in, in Peskov, I think, uh, with uh, Schlossberg, if I remember, I may be getting this wrong, uh, who, who uh, revealed and exposed a number of the Russian loss, oh, Peskov, I think, uh, in uh, Russian losses in the area um, and, and the previous fighting in Ukraine. So they're very sensitive to these losses. And, and that's something I think we we also need to highlight. Yeah. So sensitive that Shoigu came out and uh, literally, I mean, the number he gave of the Russian dead since for over the past six months mm-hmm. is lower than is listed on the official defense ministry. Like oh, that was wow. provided by defense ministry. I mean, it was like 5,800 or 5,900 that Shoigu gave. Exactly. And, and, and then he said 100,000 uh, or over 100,000 Ukrainians were killed. I mean, they can't even you know, get their lives straight. And no. They're not even trying. And it's when the you vodka. see, no, and, and when you see it's <laughs> not trying, when, when you see they're not trying to do it, that's because they're yeah. under pressure. Because yeah. you know what? The Soviet regime, when it was at its strength, Mm-hmm. Would never, ever, ever like, do you know, this. Uh, do this where at least uh, something that is, uh, you know, something that you, uh, you could check or you know the fact to for them to lie about that. Here, they just are scrambling. And it's like literally, I mean, if it wasn't for the horrors committed in Ukraine, this would be like a Three Stooges thing in Russia because they're all scrambling, scrambling, trying to figure out like what to do. What to do. Should, should we do this? Should we that? Lying about everything, even partial uh, mobilization. Yeah. Novaya Gazeta overnight um, mm-hmm. revealed that the actual paragraph missing from the order that yeah. Putin put onto the so, presidential okay. site that it calls for one million million. Who are these one million that they said are going to be trained? Well, An IT, you know IT guy from Spearbank who never yeah. fired a weapon, wouldn't even know how to fire a weapon. These are the people they're grabbing. They're not training them. And it's basically sentencing people to their death. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's, and it's a reflection of how the military leadership and the political leadership in Moscow just think they can throw numbers at the Ukrainians, overwhelm them. But but as, as we used the term earlier, they're cannon fodder. I mean, they're being yeah, sent yeah. to their deaths, yeah. essentially, by being yeah. sent to the front lines. Yeah. And the, it's not going to solve the supply problems that the Russians have. It's not going mm-hmm. to uh, resolve the logistical problems that they have. They've been under terrible military leadership in this campaign. It's why so many generals and colonels have been killed. Um, and it's why you do see a number of Russian forces laying down their arms, giving up their their uh, military uh, weapons and other other things to the Ukrainians. Um, a lot of these Russians who have been fighting have had enough. And so, I, again, I don't think this is sustainable. I, I think I think we have to. Think about the possibility. I'm not predicting this, but I think it is within the realm of possibility that the Russian military could suddenly collapse. Um, and that would be the end of Putin, in my view. I, I, there is, I think, a limit to what the Russian forces will endure. Um, and as the Ukrainians continue to push back and regain territory, uh, I think that collapse becomes uh, increasingly likely. And I think that should be our objective. That should be the U.S. foreign policy goal, which is to help the Ukrainians to victory and defeat the Russians 
so that uh, this threat never happens again. I think Secretary Austin, when when he said this in April and said, we want to weaken Russia so that it never poses this threat again, was absolutely right. I don't understand the negative reaction to what he's saying, apparently, within the White House. Um, who wants Russia to pose a threat like this again? Certainly yeah. not the Ukrainians. Yeah. And not even to Ukraine, especially with Russia, you know, and the former president slash prime minister Medvedev, every time he wakes up from his drunk stupor, threatening NATO countries. I yeah. mean, so, you know, this potentially is a threat when they say, oh, we'll roll through the Balkans. I mean, not the Balkans, the Baltics in a few days. Oh, we're going to strike Poland with nuclear. These are NATO countries. So, of course, if you could defeat them in Ukraine right now, then defeat them in Ukraine. And yeah. I would add um, two things uh, to what David said, because, you know, with the logistical thing what kind first of all the military has the lowest morale the russian military ukraine this counteroffensive i was told by ukraine oh well my contacts in ukraine in may that this counteroffensive was going to take place uh, later on towards yeah. the end of the summer they were planning logistically probably have several routes you know and actually planning it what do you have on the russian side a bunch of soldiers who are lost, who have low morale. And then I actually joked because, I mean, I'm like, my God, Putin is going to set off a third uh, Russian-Chechen war in Ukraine because you have uh, Kadyrov thugs walking behind uh, Russians who are trying to flee like the Russian military and trying to capture or shoot them. So you literally have like this big mess on the Russian side between Prigozhin's Wagner and uh, mm. Kadyrov's uh, Chechens and the Russian military all fighting each other. And then on the Ukrainian side, you actually have a real military with real weapons that actually work with the morale because they're fighting for their land and freedom. They have no choice unless someone wants to donate a country to them. And our logistical planning and support and, you know, and, and, uh, approaching this like a normal military. So that's the only two things I would add to what yeah. you would say. Actually, I have a question about the fleeing, okay, because, um, you know, speaking of okay, which, uh, I had a lot of fun watching all sorts of videos in the past few days of people, okay, getting Russians getting into their car, which tells us they don't have much faith, right? I mean, uh, they're not Peskov's uh, uh, son, Nikolai, who can get away with not uh, with not <laughs> showing air. up. Okay, on air. Okay, I love that. I love that. Or the Prime fantastic. Minister's Ms. Houston. I'm yeah. sorry, I have an education. This is not important for me to fight for my motherland right now. I apologize. Imagine. <laughs> my. Well, I mean, you know, and so these these kind this kind of thing, seeing all of these uh, Russian people getting to the borders, okay, and trying to get out, all right, like uh, kilometers and kilometers and kilometers of uh, lineups of cars, right, trying to get out. Uh, my question is, uh, should let's say the EU or the bordering states close off? Uh, these people that are leaving because there's there are some countries that are going to be applying much harsher like Georgia I think now has closed off uh, there are quite a few and there's another country I can't remember well, the, right Baltics the Baltics are the Baltics yeah. but they yeah. also said for example Kala said that for certain things that they would allow 
Okay. Uh, But not, it wasn't a carpet. Okay. Close Mm -hmm. everything off. That's it. Should we be closing them off completely so that they have no way of getting out and maybe they'll deal with the problem at home or no? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question and a very tough question to answer. Um, Mm -hmm. I am sympathetic to the views of the Balts and Poles and others who want to essentially block Russians from entering their countries. As you said, they have provided for some exceptions, like human rights activists and other critics of, of the regime. Um, and, and I think they are right to stop any Russians traveling on a tourist visa. Um, this is not tourist yeah. season anymore. No. Hasn't been for a long time, and it's about time the EU cracked down on that. Um, I think if if the Russians are are fleeing because they don't want to serve in the military, that is a tough one. I, I, I would be probably more inclined to let them into uh, Europe than than not. But I understand the arguments against it that keeping them there might produce more pressure on the regime. So so it's a very tough uh, issue to decide. Um, at the end of the day, I sort of come down this way. If Putin, Putin depends on Russian forces carrying out his orders, if he doesn't have the forces to carry out his orders, he is an emperor with no clothes. And so there, I think there is an argument to be made allowing these who otherwise might be sent to the, the front lines of, of fleeing instead, not contributing to the Russian military's force capabilities. And and then leading Putin to discover he's got nobody left. Um, he'll, he'll have some. Some, as, as Olga was saying before about the poor regions, there'll be some Russians who will join because they don't really have much alternative economically and financially. But uh, if there are people who want to flee, my inclination is to, to let them do so. Let's also remember, by the way, this just underscores the absurdity of the Russian claims when Alexander Dugin's daughter was mm. uh, blown up in his car. And the Russians claimed that it was a Ukrainian woman with her 12-year-old daughter, who then, after after uh, brainstorming this this idea um, and carrying it out, flew uh, drove off with a cat from Moscow to Estonia. So she was able to get out. Um, you'd think that they would be uh, Russians would be able to find a way to do so. Yeah. Um, let's say Olga, they've started their own little migrant crisis, basically. <laughs> That's what Putin has done. You Do you have anything to add to that? Well, I mean, the only thing I could add on the end, you know, of, of distrust of Russian military by Russians is uh, we've seen in Belgorod the escape. Now, Belgorod is Russian territory, mm-hmm. and that's another territory that Ukrainians have been striking because they've been yep. striking the ammunition depots and launch sites from Belgorod. And you see people piling up. I mean, they're constantly traffic. You know, you see uh, uh, pools of traffic into to go deeper into Russia. So clearly, you know, regular citizens are distrustful of the military. But again, it is something that goes back to Soviet days because, you know, as conditioned as you are to follow Mm -hmm. the regime, to repeat the talking points, to believe the propaganda. Even in the Soviet days, you were like they were distrustful of the government even like any vaccines injected into you. Mm. Like during the Soviet mm. days, people were like, I don't want nothing injected. And you saw yeah. a replay with COVID where Russians mm-hmm. just generally were not trustful of their government. 
to inject anything into their body because they don't know what is being injected. So um, I think as far as that, you know, that the distrust is only building because of the so many lies and because Putin's, you know, I always say Putin's propaganda machine is one of the smoothest, most powerful machines to the point it convinced the West of their powerful Mm. army and it convinced, you know, us of things that don't uh, exist, that are an illusion. Um, The fact that there was such a disarray within the propagandists where you have RIA Novosti, which is official state media, Mm -hmm. you know, when the counteroffensive began saying, you know, that, oh, yeah, no, they're planning this to regroup. And then you have war war propagandists on Telegram who are like, this is why we should have never let Putin in back in 2008. He should have been done there. And then you have propagandists on TV, you know, questioning the whole Nazi thing and, and basically challenging, you know, certain guests. Which actually, the, the, it was very uh, amusing to watch, but challenging of what? And maybe we should sit down with Ukrainians if you tell them they don't exist. And obviously, that plan is not working. And my favorite line this guy said, You know, we were told, and there's a military expert who's on federal TV every single day, we were told that you, uh, Russian military would die when they go into Odessa from the hugs that they will get. And clearly that's not happening. No one even wants them there. They're not hugging anyone. So, you know, I think, and he's still on TV and he'll be on TV tomorrow, lying to everyone. The fact that these discussions were happening on main prime time television shows, I think Putin is losing a grip on the propaganda, which is the only functioning mm-hmm. thing that he actually has in that has state. In the thing. And, and look at Ola Pugachova, who, who yes. uh, publicly came out. I mean, that's yes. actually fairly significant. And so, you know, I, I think one of the problems Putin is facing is people don't like to associate with a loser. And, and mm-hmm. he is really looking like a big loser in this. Um, where he has sent Russians off to die for a cause they don't understand. And the campaign is clearly uh, going in the Ukrainians' favor. As as Olga said, the various TV commentators really are starting to come to grips with that. Uh, You see some retweeting of critical uh, uh, messages being sent, Mm -hmm. even by some surprising sources like uh, uh, the, the head of RT, um, so so some of this is it, I, we have to be mindful. Some of this may start to fall apart. It's the old expression. I'm not predicting the collapse of the, the Putin regime, but let's remember these regimes seem stable until they're not. And you never quite know what the tipping point be. It could be an attempt to try to steal an election. It could be uh, launching a stupid war uh, that is inflicting awful uh, harm and, and damage on not just Ukraine, but on Russia as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And with Russia, knowing their history over the centuries, uh, you know, people are loyal to a leader until they are not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that yeah, regime yeah. is not yeah. it's not like we're all going to, you know, we're all going to prosper together and we're all going to sink together. The minute yeah. it starts sinking, they have no problems turning on each other. Yeah. I um, have a question, actually, before we, we go on with with yours, Olga. Um, there was a video that's that's circulating uh, with Prigozhin, okay, that seems to be 
no, uh, he looks like he's Mr. He's in charge. Okay. Um, speaking of being, you know, on shaky ground, how are we to interpret that video? Why was it put out? Do we know? Uh, I don't know, but I okay. mean, Prigozhin is an evil man. There's no doubt about it. Um, the, the head of the Wagner mercenaries that have done tremendous damage, not just in Ukraine most recently, but in Syria and the Central African Republic and Mali. Um, this is a brutal, murderous outfit that Prigozhin oversees. Um, he, of course, owes his entire position and wealth and standing to Mr. Putin. Um, and so Putin has provided him Krisha to do all this. Um, Prigozhin may feel that it's time for him to assert himself a little more. I don't know why he'd be mm. bragging about anything because none of this is going well. I know. His, his forces, have been, as, as we talked about earlier, his forces have been going into prisons, recruiting people. Um, that's how desperate things have become. They're running out of people. And the Ukrainians, uh, God love them, they're, they keep reinforcing their troops. Um, look, it, it is terribly difficult for the Ukrainians. The losses they have suffered are, are unimaginable and heart-wrenching. Um, but they they are determined, whereas the Russians, I mean, when you when you start recruiting in the prisons or mental hospitals, where else, wherever else it may be, that's not a, a good sign. It's not a sign that things are going to turn out well for you. We're more likely to see more gross human rights abuses because the Wagner mercenaries don't give a damn about human life. And so they'll shoot and execute anyone, uh, grandmother, grandfather, or a, a, an infant. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I wanted to dig in a little, like, to wrap this up on a positive note, or at least what I think is positive. Um, we saw something that was kind of also another challenge to Putin, where it began with, one district, and I find it very, very telling just from the signs of what happened. One um, municipality in St. Petersburg, um, in Leningrad, uh, that uh, uh, Heiko drafted articles to submit to Duma, you know, to charge Putin for treason. The reason I find it very significant is that it came from a municipality that's Putin's child home. And the fact that it started there, I mean, it was interesting. Then by that later that day, it went into a Moscow municipality and then it just kept growing and growing and growing. And, you know, the list was getting to like over 100 deputies who were the Moscow and then the language softened. It was more put in to resign. And then, um, you know, we see the, the propaganda machine for the most part collapsing or at least weakening, maybe not collapsing yet, but weakening because they can't seem to be on the same page about anything. Are we prepared as a West for a post-Putin mm. era? Are people right now making calculations if this regime collapses? Um, you know, this is how we're going to address it. Because my biggest fear is that we're going to repeat the 90s where Russia actually did have a chance for democracy and so much money got flooded after the Soviet Union collapsed into Russia. And that money went into the hands of mafia, of politi corrupt politicians mm -hmm. and uh, intelligence agencies who were all working together to seize all the natural resources of the country. This time around, are we 
factoring this in, do you think? And also, do you think we learned our mistakes from the 90s? All of us as a West. I think it all depends on how this ends, Olga. I think um, if if Putin is removed by the security services or military or something like that, I don't think we'll see much change in the in the Western approach. I think we'll maintain the sanctions until uh, the new leader might withdraw from Ukraine entirely. Um, if there's a popular movement, and I frankly think that's unlikely that he would be removed as a result yeah, of a really. popular uprising, um, that could lead to a more positive dynamic. Um, but if it is the elite around Putin who has said, this guy has been around too long, he's screwing things up for us, it's time for a change, and they put in, whether it's Shoigu or Nishustin or somebody, um, I don't think you'll see much change in our approach. But okay. I think what you're getting at is we do need to be thinking about the day that comes and it will come, whether it's this year, next year, in 10 years, yeah. when Putin is not going to be leading Russia. But a lot will on, on what we do will depend on how he's gone. Uh, if he dies in office um, uh, from whatever causes, um, we, we've got to be prepared there may not be significant change in the Russian policy, depending yeah. on how he's gone. Um, but I think we do want to maintain contact with as many Russians as possible who do not support the regime, whether it's the Navalny's or, or anyone else like that, while also pressing for the release of political prisoners, including Navalny, including Vladimir Karamosa. We're, we're pressing for the release of, of two Americans. Frankly, there should be a third included, along with Brittany Griner and, and, and Paul Whelan. Paul, Mark, Mark Fogel should be included in that group. Uh, but we should also be pressing for the release of, of, of the political prisoners. Now, I think close to 500, uh, if I remember right, on memorials count, um, and, and including friends of ours, Karamurza, uh, Navalny and others. Um, so, so we need to stand true to our principles and um, do what we can while also, look, I think at the end of the day, the, the best policy for us dealing with Russia is to support Ukraine. If we help Ukraine to victory, that could have significant reverberations and implications for Russia, for Putin, for Putinism, for authoritarianism. And so uh, the stakes here are so enormous. Yeah. It's why I think we have to do are, everything we can to yeah. support Ukraine. There are going to be so many Putin pawns that fall um, in the Middle East and in uh, Europe and yeah. across in Africa. That I mean, <laughs> don't tell me about it, please. Yeah. Okay, no, I don't want to go down that road. What I do think that we should finish off with anybody, if you're interested, please get onto the government websites, okay, the Ukrainian government website, to check to see if you would like to donate anything for the winter, okay, that is coming up, because it's extremely important. Winter clothing, um, all sorts of, you know, I guess, um, all sorts of items and different things that they will be needing. So if you know, if you have a little bit of extra cash and you want to help out a little bit, please do that, okay? Always the Ukrainian sites, because they will direct you to all of the, let's say, different uh, associations that there are uh, and that are working and they've been vetted, which is extremely important, okay, uh, right now. And also, David, I loved what you said about we need to stand, do we have to stand by our values? We have to stand true to our values. And um, it reminded me of something that uh, Kuleba, Dimitro, 
Kuleba said, okay, the other night on uh, Colbert, he was he was there. If you haven't seen that interview, please go and see it. And I would like, I, I'm just going to, you know, record it and then play it every morning. Okay. Uh-huh. It's absolutely incredible. He said to the question, he said, well, how did you guys do it? He said, well, you know, we're just being Ukrainian. Okay. <laughs> Tim, these are the, you know, the values. So uh, I think this is a great positive note. Okay. To, uh, Slavu to and, and to end on a negative note. No, no. I really, I really, really hope. I mean, it's a positive <laughs> slash negative note. I really do hope that people like uh, do realize that this is bigger than Putin because yes. honestly, it's a, it's a yes. checkist. I call it a checkist system that's you know been in place over a century, and you know, with Putin's demise, which I think is coming, as long as the West. coordinates this correctly Mm -hmm. and keep sanctions on they have to still you know they have to take into account that it's the system inside of russia and that system that's controlled by security services for the past century is so corrupt and that system needs to collapse in order for there to be you know a future for russia but that's not Mm -hmm. our concern right now our concern is that we don't just say oh look putin's gone and you know that's it Mm -hmm. everything's back to normal no and i know we're going back to just to build on that on that Mm -hmm. point real quick china is watching what happens in ukraine china is watching the west's reaction to russia's Mm -hmm. invasion of ukraine so if we want to avoid uh china's invasion of taiwan we have to continue to help Ukraine succeed because if we can defeat Russia and Ukraine, thanks to the Ukrainians, um, China may think twice before launching a stupid Absolutely. war against Taiwan. Yeah, Absolutely. I agree. 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 Absolutely. Okay. So we'll wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> David, we can't thank you enough. Always a pleasure. Always, always enjoy speaking with you. Likewise. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media. With associate producers Ruby Franco and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.